welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Thank you to FIU's Disability Resource Center for providing transcription services. Hey everyone, this is Shimon. Thanks so much for listening to Doing the Work. It's important to note that this episode was recorded before the coronavirus pandemic. I hope everyone, your family, friends, and communities are doing okay. At the end of the interview, Alejandra talks about the need for people to go to Mexico to help Al Otro Lado with their work. Because of the coronavirus pandemic, Al Otro Lado is currently providing remote assistance. If you're interested in helping in the ways Alejandra mentions at the end of the episode, please get in touch with Al Otro Lado to see how you can help remotely during this critical time. In this episode, I talk with Alejandra Martinez, who is the workshop coordinator of the Border Rights Project of Al Otro Lado, a binational social justice legal services organization serving deportees, migrants, and refugees in Tijuana, Mexico, and San Diego and Los Angeles, California. Alejandra talks about the incredibly challenging conditions faced by people who are migrating and seeking asylum and the inhumane U.S. policies, such as an illegal wait list, the highly controversial family separation, and the MPP, Migrant Protection Protocol Law, also known as the Remain in Mexico policy, as well as how U.S. asylum procedures are constantly changing and unpredictable. She explains that she and her team provide a safe, supportive space in Tijuana where they acknowledge the trauma and long journey many asylum seekers and migrants have experienced. Alejandra discusses how the Border Rights Project provides legal orientation and a Know Your Rights session for asylum seekers, as well as connects them to additional services such as shelters and medical care. She tells how Al Otro Lado recently reunited 29 families who had been separated, and she shares how she got into this work. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Hola Alejandra, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And to get things started, could you tell the listeners what you currently do? Of course. Thank you, Shimon. So my name is Alejandra Martinez. I'm the workshop coordinator for the Border Rights Project. It's a project that we have here down in Tijuana with the organization Al Otro Lado. So what we do here is that we provide legal orientation for asylum seekers who are trying to apply for asylum in the U.S. We gave them an orientation. We also gave them a Know Your Rights session. We explained to them their rights, their the asylum process, and also we help them if they happen to be MPPs, this is the new, um, well, as if they start like in January 2019, this new policy where they send asylum seekers from Hispanic, uh, Spanish-speaking countries back to Mexico to wait for their hearings here. That means that their access, since they're in Mexico waiting for their hearings, their legal access or access to any type of advocacy is very limited. So we help them if they happen to have their hearings closed, their cases terminated, or, or if any inju- injustice happened during their process, we try to interfere there and do what, do what we can. It's really important work that you're doing. And, um, you know, a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are 
social workers and social work students and social work educators. And so I was hoping that you could share some of what you think is the most important information about the issues that the people you are helping are, are facing, you know, on a, on, on a daily basis that you think people who are listening to the podcast should know about. Yes, of course. So we work with vulnerable communities, with migrants who are fleeing persecution. So we all always have to consider their emotional well-being and uh, all the trauma they have been through. So, and also to, to be aware of the different trauma responses that all human beings have and, and how to, to address that when, when, well, it comes in, in the conversation, doing an intake, etc. So most of the people we work with, uh, they are living in shelters. Some people, don't, they don't know where to live. They're living in the street. They just arrived to Tijuana. They're scared, etc. So we always need um, these like humane treatment, this time to let them express themselves, make them feel comfortable, make them feel secure, um, make them feel that they do matter because most of these people have been traveling for so long, maybe not for so long, for very far away, very long distances. So uh, they have been extortion, uh, cheated, abused, a lot of times during their travels. So once they get here to Tijuana, finally to request them in the U.S., um, they are very tired and desperate. So we always try to make them feel secure in their space. I think that is one of the most important things that we do here. We provide that safe space for the, for the families. We provide um, un trato digno. That's how we say it in Spanish. Is a dignified treatment. I don't mm -hmm. know. <laughs> And uh, we also try to help them with their basic needs. So here in our project, we focus on uh, legal orientation and legal type of help. But we also work with other organizations that provide shelters, that provide food, that provide free medic, uh, med medic services, like um, medical clinics. And we always try to pair them with those services because I believe that it's very important what we do here, but it's not the only thing that they need. Right. They need a lot more than the legal support, even though that's mm -hmm. critical. And so you're connecting them with other types of support and needs. Let's let's talk about the let's talk about policy and the changing policy since the current the Trump administration. And, um, you know, I know there was family separation under Obama. There was deportation, uh, not at the levels that it is at, from what I understand now. So could you, I think, we, you know, we have, time, we have enough time to talk about a couple of these different ways. But I want to just start with um, a lot of people, I think, don't understand that asylum seeking is legal. It is a legal right that people have. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So asylum is a type of international protection that all human beings has the right to ask for. So when someone is no longer safe, I think people don't, often don't realize or differentiate the difference between migration and being asylum seeker. 
I'm a full supporter of both, but now that we are uh, talking about the asylum seeker, when you're seeking asylum is because you're fleeing persecution. That means that someone has done you like very bad harm or someone is planning to do you very bad harm. So you have to flee. Alone with your family, you have to flee. Literally with the clothes you have on, sometimes you have time to grab some documents, grab a, a luggage or something like that, but most of the time you don't. You flee. And uh, is there right to go, right now we're, we're talking about the United States, as I'm in the United States. So is there right to enter the United States and ask for asylum? It doesn't matter how they enter the United States through a port of entry or without inspection, they have the right to request asylum. And many, many times this right is being denied to them and they have been returned back to Tijuana or to any like border city between the States and Mexico. And they are forced to line up in a, well, to put their names in a, in a wait list. This wait list is illegal. Um, so Mexican immigration uh, officials are doing this in different ports of entry, in different border, border cities with the states. They are making the asylum seekers to write their names in this wait list and wait a couple of months until their name, their turn comes so they can enter the United States to request asylum. This is illegal. Supposedly no one should wait, not even one day, to start the process to request asylum in the United States. In Mexico, and especially Tijuana is not the safest city in the world, <laughs> and making the people wait here, the pe people who are already at risk wait here in Tijuana. Tijuana is like worldwide known for child trafficking, sex trafficking, making people who are already vulnerable wait here for months to wait to ask for asylum in the US. It's inhumane. It's very, it's very difficult to see that. Right. So the America so the the US government isn't following its own laws where people who are asylum seekers should be able to come in through a port of entry and start the process and remain in the US while that's happening. They're getting rejected and they're now in a situation where they're they've left their country because of violence, because of different issues that force them to flee and it and their risk is even increased plus there's there, you know, there's trauma as you talked about. So it's a, it's, it creates a very unsafe situation. Yeah, that's true. So with Al Otro Lado, you know, and you're working on the legal or orientation for the asylum seekers, what kind of things do you go over with them? Yeah. So we do, we have two different types of intake, intake forms. So we do one form and we have one form for the people who are about to request asylum in the U.S. And most of them are Spanish speakers, but we have served people from over 50 different countries in a lot of different languages. So the orientation we gave them for the people who are about to, to request asylum is if they qualify or if they potentially, because everything that we do here, well, that we advise here is potential. If they potentially qualify for the basis of asylum, for the protected grounds. So in the United States, in order to receive asylum, whatever happened to you needs to be because of your nationality, 
your race, your religion, your political opinion, or because you're from a specific social group. So we explore those parts of the claim and the lawyers that are the, the immigration attorneys from the U.S. are the ones who review the, the intakes and give them the, the orientation. We also ask them things about, uh, we collect data about their journey. If something happened to them here in Mexico, if they are not Mexicans, like during their travels here in the, in the country, um, if they're traveling with family members, etc., and some other demographics. The second, the other intake form is the intake form for the MPPs. As I said before, the MPPs are the people who are already in proceedings to request asylum in the U.S., but the U.S. decide that it will be best for them to wait in Mexico, their hearing dates. So they should present themselves at the port of entry, uh, their given uh, date, and go to their hearings and then come back to Mexico. This is also problematic, but um, what we do here with the people under the MPP, we also give them a legal orientation about their claim in case they didn't came with us uh, beforehand. And we also explore if they have had any type of problem during their hearings or if anyone prevent them to enter the, through the port of entry to attend one of their hearings. And whenever the judge gave them the I-539, that's the asylum application, we help them pro bono to fill that out. What does MPP, what does MPP stand for? Is Migrant Protection Protocol. Okay. And those are the people who come over but then get sent back while they're pending their case. Yeah. You were talking about the different kind of like ways that people qualify to be asylum seekers. And, you know, something that was talked about a lot a couple years ago was when the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who isn't anymore, <laughs> but when he was, he made a big statement about how domestic violence survivors were no longer or were not going to be considered a protected group. So have you, I'm assuming you see a lot of people, especially women, who are fleeing domestic violence. Their lives are at serious, serious risk. Yeah. What happens there? Yeah, we, we have seen a lot of cases of domestic violence, a lot of cases where women are treated as objects, and a lot of cases where the persecutor of those domestic violence cases are following them, already found them in Mexico or here in Tijuana. So they are in that immediate uh, risk of harm. So the attorney general made a suggestion that domestic violence, as long with family, those uh, based claims were, so it was a suggestion. So domestic violence claims, based claims, along with family-based claims, they are not as strong as they used to, but they still qualified as a base for asylum. So they are not strong. They are like more weak than they used to be, but they still qualify as a base for asylum. That's really important information to have. Thank you for clarifying that. Also, like the basis for asylum, you can qualify for, you don't, you don't only have to qualify in one, 
you can qualify in multiple, multiple. So your claim can be because of your race, domestic violence, and other things. It not have to be only one base. You can have multiple bases. Does it make for a stronger case the more ways, the more kind of areas that someone has? Yeah. Well, every, every case is different. But yeah, in a case where uh, the base is not very strong, as we're talking about domestic violence or family, it's always uh, good to, to look other areas. Does Al Otro Lado also work on, you know, policy change inside of the United States in terms of, you know, um, how people qualify, you know, this whole issue that's going on where the U.S. government is not following the law? Is there pressure that's being done as well from, you know, legal advocates inside the United States? Yes. Actually, the most recent one that I have, like, on the top of my head was that uh, there's this new rule in the States about the third safe country. That means that people who enter the States after a certain date uh, and they cross during their journey to any other country, like basically everyone who is requesting asylum in the U.S. after July 16, and they are not Mexican or Canadian, like all the other countries that are not neighbors from the U.S., they are being obligated to request asylum in any other country that the United States qualifies as safe before asking for asking before requesting asylum in the U.S. So, for example, if you're someone from Honduras, uh, that is not very safe, the country, and uh, you request, you go, went through Guatemala and Mexico before you go to, to request asylum to the U.S., United States will ask you to, to ask for asylum in one of those countries because for the United States, Guatemala, Mexico, and Honduras are safe countries. So if you cross one of those countries, you should have been like requesting asylum there. And if your asylum is denied, now you can ask asylum for the US. We are against that because clearly those these countries, because I'm in Mexico right now, are not safe. But so what we did here is that, as I mentioned previously, uh, the existence of the wait list prevent a lot of people to request asylum in the U.S. So this new rule is from uh, July 16 on. But what happened with all the people that got to a border city, in this case to Tijuana, before July 16, but because these illegal lists, they, they were forced to wait several months here, and they uh, entered the U.S. to request asylum afterwards, but not because they got here uh, after July 16 because they got here previously, but they were forced to wait in the illegal wait list. So what we were able to do is that to make for the people who sign up in the illegal wait list uh, before July 16 to, to not be affected in this new, new policy. Right. The wait list was going to push them past the cutoff date, but you were able to get them included before that change so they could apply directly for asylum in the U.S. rather than going through another one of the, the uh, one of the other countries. Yeah. You know, another policy I really wanted to get your thoughts on is the family separation, um, because it has been devastating 
And I wanted to just, I mean, you're, you're seeing, you see this every day with, right. With, with what's happening with families, parents who are being deported, their, their kids are remaining in the U S there's been reports yeah. that these children are getting forced into adoption without their parents' consent. So I just, I wanted to get your thoughts on all of that. Yeah. So this is an issue that we deal with this every day in different areas. So we, we have the obligation to inform everyone who comes into our clinic about the family separation uh, issues and risks. So it's sometimes I do the know your right session, sometimes another colleague does it. But when I do the know your right session, this part is especially difficult for me because um, you're in front of the clients. We call them clients because we haven't figured out a better word, but you're in in front of the individuals who are seeking asylum. And uh, when you talk about the possibilities or of being separated in the icebox, because this is where, where everything happens at the beginning of the process. So they are being held in the first facility is called the icebox, the Yelera. And there's where parents that are traveling with their biological or legally adopted children, they have documentation about the relationship and they don't represent any harm to the minor, they still get separated, even if they have documentation. And have to tell that to the individuals, the, the asylum seekers who are in the clinics is very hard. Sometimes mothers and parents in general, they start, they, they seem very emotionally distressed with this information. Um, this is the reality. We have to interfere to reunite 29 families a couple of months ago, back in 2019, because they cross, they enter the Yelera and the icebox. They were separated from their children. They start their asylum process because supposedly when you get separated, you get reunited when your asylum process ends, either if you want asylum or if you lose, if you got deported. That is supposedly. Because in this case, all these families, as you were saying, got deported to their home countries and the kids stay in the U.S. They they didn't um, try to reunificate them or anything. It's like the United States kidnapped the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so we had to intervene there and uh, litigate so we can reunificate those families. We, we did it. We reunificate those 29 families. And yeah, but this is something that still is happening nowadays. And we we hear different types of family separation, uh, separation where they're only apart while they're in the icebox for a couple of days, separations where they are apart for months, separation where they are apart uh, even when the parents are being deported. So it's changing and it's unpredictable. And that is one of the worst things that when... People is asking you, are asking you like, so what will happen? Or they want a clear, a more clear path to know what to expect. We gave to them the, all the possible potential scenarios, but there's no one, like one clear path because there's so many things that can happen and so unpredictable. There's some people, for example, that stays in the icebox in the Yelera for three days, there's people that stay there 19 or 20 days. Mm. 
So it's everything is so unpredictable in the asylum process in the U.S. Yeah, and it's constantly changing and the information, you know, I understand what you're saying. Like you can't, people can't depend on this is the process because that's just not the way it works. And when they instituted this policy, they never planned. My, I mean, from what I understand is that they never planned, the government never planned to reunite the families. They didn't develop a way to track them. They, you know, deport the parents. They say they don't know where the kids are. And, um, you know, I, I mean, just to share my opinion, I think it's absolutely unacceptable. I think it's a human rights violation. It is state-sanctioned kidnapping. And, you know, mm-hmm. there needs to be legislation or something passed that forces the government to reunite these families. Yeah. We even tell the, the, the people who we serve here that when they're crossing to write in their children's arms with permanent marker. Their information, not the information about the child, the information about the parent. Uh, so if eyes lose them, they can see like in their arm who are the parents so they can put them back together. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, it's very hard to see and to, especially very hard to, to see the clients receiving this information. I think that's, that's one of the most diff- difficult parts of this job. You know, one of the things I was going to ask you is what are some of the biggest challenges of what you do? So, you know, that's, that's one of them. What, what do you, you know, what do you think is another challenge in terms of, you know, social change, social justice, uh, really getting like these bigger changes to happen? Yeah. Well, I think one of the most, like the biggest thing in Social, like, in parity. That is a word in English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like inequality or inequity. Inequality. Yeah. yeah is the access of, to legal uh, services. So the percentage of asylum seekers that got, like, legal representation, because we don't, here in the clinic, in the Border Rights Project, we don't represent individuals. We only give an orientation. But the percentage of asylum seekers that, that get legal representation is very low. And having a lawyer like to legally represent you, it increases your chance your chances to win asylum like very like dramatically. So I think one well also this is like related to to like um economic inequity, like mm-hmm. yeah. income inequity because well not all people has the ability to 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 hire a lawyer, but this is I think this is one of the things that impact more asylum seekers that not all have the chance or the means to to hire a lawyer, and I think this this should change. Um, we do work pro bono, and we work with other organizations that do pro bono work. But I think we're in a crisis here at the border. We need more attorneys who can do pro bono work because the clients really need it. Yeah, I'm going to um, provide some information in the show notes of the podcast so that people can, you know, listeners can get in touch with your organization, um, hopefully to support the important work that you're doing because every little bit of help, I'm sure, is beneficial. You know, I wanted to ask you before we finish, how did you get into doing this work? Um, 
so I was born and raised in Tijuana. So I got to to see like migration firsthand. And Tijuana is a very young city, like it has around 150 years. And everyone that is living here is, well, not everyone, right? But most of the people who's living here are migrants. Like my mom is from Mexico City, my grandma is from other part of Mexico, etc. And we were always also like, um, we see firsthand the reality of the deportees because they are sent here to the border. So we see directly when the deportees arrive and, and the situation that um, the vulnerability of those situations. So I, I was always very aware of the migration issues or situation to say, say like that. And I got, when I was like in high school and university, I started getting involved in social projects with vulnerable communities, but I was working mostly with kids. And then I got to, I I went to another nonprofit in Nicaragua for one year and a half. To, I was a volunteer coordinator and I had to leave Nicaragua because of the political problem that happened. And even though I was working in a nonprofit for kids, because it was what I used to do, um, I got like I got very touched about how someone and I'm from Mexico that our political situation is not very well. Right. <laughs> but to to see that in Nicaragua how people were directly affected about with everything that was happening only in 2018, that really touched me. And then a couple of months. Uh, later, the one of the first caravan, the biggest caravan from Honduras, arrived here in Mexico, and people from Central America joined the caravan. So I wanted to get involved there, and I get involved. I start going to the shelters to to provide food, uh, helping in the donation centers to organize the the donations, cooking for the shelters for the community, and then I found al otro lado. <laughs> And I started volunteering there, and then they they hired me, and I'm still here. So yeah, it has been like um, a creative path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's quite a journey. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen a lot along along this path you've taken. Yeah. So I want to, um, you know, before we finish, I also just want to give you the opportunity if you have anything else you want to share. Before we finish the interview, you know, now is, now is your chance to use this podcast as a way to get out any message you want to. Yes, of course. So here in the Border Rights Project, we are a very small staff team. <laughs> we are about like seven staff members, but we make all these possible things to the interns, long-term volunteers, short-term volunteers. We have served like... I think like 6,000 of, of asylum seekers here in this project. Wow. And nothing of this is possible. Uh, we run like with very little resources. <laughs> if you get to see, to come to our office, <laughs> you will see. But um, not nothing of this will be possible if we wouldn't have the support of, of the volunteers. So if you have one week of your time, one week off that you can take on vacation, or if you're in a school, if you're studying and you can take, and, and you would like to do an internship or something like that, come visit, visit us. The Border Rights Project is always in need of volunteers, of pro bono immigration attorneys, interns, long-term, 
And it's a very impactful experience. And be able to see this firsthand and then go back to your hometown and tell everyone that your friends, your family, what you saw is very powerful. Because one thing is see it on the news or read it about it. Another thing is see it firsthand. So if you have the, the opportunity to come here, I think the one of the most effective ways to bring awareness to our community is to share our experiences mouth to mouth and and live in it. So if you want to come, <laughs> just go to our website, alotrolado.org, and uh, register yourself to volunteer in the Border Rights Project, and we will see each other here. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, and I hope that people listening are able to go. And, you know, I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and also um i want to say gracias por hacer el trabajo en la comunidad muchas gracias por todo lo que tú haces gracias Shimon. thank you so much thank you for listening to doing the work frontline stories of social change i hope you enjoyed the podcast please follow on twitter and leave positive reviews on itunes if you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work Please get in touch and thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.